So this is the final sermon in our series on sex. Next week, we'll, t- we'll start a series on money. And then after that brief series, we are not going to move on to power, if um, you're wondering. We figure two of the big three is good enough, right? Now, at various points throughout this series, I've touched on the three basic approaches to sex here in the West at this point in time. The realist says sex is natural. It's biological. People have sex because it is an innate, inevitable biological drive. And so what we need to do is strip sex of it, of the taboos that our society places upon it. On the one hand, We need to demystify sex, take away these taboos. And on the other hand, we need to keep it safe. So don't be uptight and don't be irresponsible. That's the kind of realist agenda when it comes to sex in our culture. The only bad sex is uptight sex and irresponsible sex. If there's consent and there's safety, then go for it. Now, a second approach to sex in our culture comes out of the romanticism, the movement that we label romanticism. And this says yes on safety and yes on consent, but it adds another element. For romanticism, the key issue is feeling. And in particular, the feeling of love. The romantic movement that developed starting in the late 18th century was a counter-enlightenment movement. So the Enlightenment elevated reason. The counter-Enlightenment came back and elevated feeling above reason. So in the counter-Enlightenment movement, feeling has the high moral ground. If two people feel appropriately, which in this context is love, if two people love one another, we should not prohibit their right to express that love through sex. So long as there is love, sex is good and right, and true, and beautiful. Now, a third development is existentialism. And here the quest for personal authenticity has become supreme. And personal authenticity in our culture now is self-justifying. Your great need is to be true to yourself. The greatest journey I can take is to discover who I really am. And my sexual desires, my sexual orientation, this is fundamental to my identity. So each of us should embrace our desires, discover them underneath the layers of all that learned morality, all that imposed morality, underneath social conventions. And then once you discover your true sexual desires, you must be true to them, whatever it takes. And if you are, you're a hero in our culture. And suddenly, the courageous person who taps into that, that person gets the higher moral ground. So realism, then romanticism, then existentialism. These are the massive cultural undercurrents that are pushing so much of our complex and painful moment when it comes to sex in our culture. These currents are ebbing around Now, there is much good in all three of those. 
All three of those have tapped into essential truths that our culture had lost. So much truth there. So much for which we should be thankful in all three of those, those kind of bodies of thought. For example, in all of them, there has been the recovery of a deep appreciation for the important role of desire. Desire. This recognition that our desires are not only powerful, they are important. Now, the Bible has been saying this for many thousands of years. The Christian faith has everything to do with desire. The Enlightenment was wrong to elevate reason to such an extent that desire and passion became viewed as contaminants of truth and beauty and objectivity. The counter-enlightenment recognized this. It was right to push back. We are not heads walking around on sticks. Desire is important. It is fundamental. It does matter. The encounter enlightenment was right to recognize that feeling and passion, these are important to what it means to be human and important to truth and even necessary to objectivity. Now that's a subject for another time. Parts of scripture like the Song of Solomon are unashamed about desire. There's no disconnect in the Bible between desire and truth. Desire and beauty. Desire is a gift from God. Desire is God's gift to us so that we can feel passionately about things. Our desires are more important than we ever realize. We should be thankful for these deep movements in our culture that are insisting on not alienating desire. It's the atomic energy of our souls. It's the ache that that we long for something. God designed us to desire. And at the center of what it means to be human is to desire. This, again, is how God made us. God wants us to be fully human. He wants us to flourish. And sexual desires are important for that. They are foundational to who we are. But here's where the Bible goes a step further. Desire is easily misdirected. God has created and ordered the world with boundaries and limits. And when we truly understand these creational designs, we can live beautifully and truthfully. We can flourish within them. This is where the Christian vision of sex is very different from our society's vision of sex. Remember the enlightenment has produced many good things, many great things. I don't want to go back, right? I don't want to roll the clock back and no longer have so much of the technology that saves our lives and extends our lives and makes our lives more comfortable today. The enlightenment has given us many gifts for which we should be very thankful, but it has also produced some very bad things. At the heart of the enlightenment was rebellion. It produced the French Revolution, which was rebellion against church and crown. It produced the American Revolution, which was rebellion against England, which was entirely okay. That part's not right. <laughs> but, but, what it, but 
At the heart of, if you read history from the time of all these revolutions, you know that right at the heart of it was the proclamation of freedom against constraints. You cannot throw off the constraints of England, of crown, of church, without there being a residual effect. At the heart of the the revolutions, at the heart of the Enlightenment, was this proclamation of freedom against constraint. The constraints of systems, including ethical systems. That these kinds of things, these constraints, they are external to us and against us. They are outmoded. They're unnecessary. They're suddenly, we can make this word pejorative, medieval. They're they're somehow repressive. So our society is right to say that happiness is connected to desire. That fulfilling desires does impact and relate to happiness. But our society is wrong to say that our happiness occurs in the unlimited satisfaction of desires. And therefore, to be happy, we must be free from prohibitions. No, the vision of human sexuality presented in Scripture recognizes both the importance of your desires, while it also reminds us time and time again to be careful of them because they can be misdirected. God has created the world with a good structure. And because human beings have a capacity for freedom... Our desires take God's structure and misdirect it. So yes, desire is fundamental to being a human. And yes, desire is powerful. It taps into the deepest motivations of our hearts and our cultures and our institutions. But if it gets out of order, as it constantly does, our desires are dangerous. When it comes to desire in a fallen world, constraint is not our enemy. It is vital. Now, this is where the Christian approach looks at culture and refuses to have allegiance to any moment in culture. Takes the good and critiques the bad. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. This passage that Donna read to us just a few minutes ago. Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book in the Bible. On my, it's right near the beginning. On mine, it's page uh, 73. Very close to the front. Exodus chapter 20. Starting in verse 13. You shall not murder... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything in your neighbor's. A couple of things about this. This is called the second tablet. The Ten Commandments are divided in half. This half deals with neighborhoods. And it starts with the worst thing you can do in a neighborhood. It deals with violence against neighbor. Murder. And then what's the next one? Adultery, then stealing, then lying. So it takes... These violent actions that destroy neighborhoods, destroy neighbors, destroy community, and it prohibits them. And then it gets to the last one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Unfortunately, that's a bad translation. 
See, if you're reading this in English, sometimes you're at a disadvantage. Not always, but that is the exact same word. For in Genesis, when Eve looked at the fruit to desire it, that is the word desire. You shall not desire. You see, right there in that word, it's showing us that desire, while it's a wonderful thing, it can also be misdirected. So think about the logic of the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. He's walking through how we destroy each other. And he starts out prohibiting the worst things you can do, right? Murder. And then in descending order, adultery. And then stealing. And then lying. And then he stops because he's got to stop the list somewhere. Because if not, you get case law, which just, you know, explodes into massive amounts of words. He stops and he says, you know what? You know what the real entry to all this is? Misordered desires. And so then he starts to line out the misordered desires. Your neighbor's house. Your neighbor's wife, your, his male servant or female servant or ox or donkey. And then he stops there and says, you know what? We can't do this forever. At the end of the day, when you have this misdirected desire for anything that belongs to your neighbor, it will lead to the destruction of Shalom. Do not have that kind of desire. Now think about how radical this is. Think about how piercing this is. Think about how the 10th commandment is the gateway to all of the commandments. It's not last, it's preeminent. Think about how it echoes the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. And the last one is, you better love your neighbor too. That's why Jesus picks it up and summarizes all of God's commands as loving God and loving neighbor. And you see it right here at the, the first pillar and the last pillar of this enormous edifice called the Ten Commandments. And do you see how God does not say you can stop with action. The real problem is not your behavior, it is your heart's. That's where we've got to get with this thing. We've got to get down to your desires because it is your misdirected desires that leads to all of this stuff. Now, located where we are, saturated in several centuries of the enlightenment and the counter-enlightenment. Awash in the notion that repressing someone's innate nature is terrible. This causes many of us to look at something like the Ten Commandments with all of its prohibitions and to say, there it is. Doesn't Christianity succumb to that gratuitous itch to prohibit? Isn't Christianity right here at its heart yielding to an irrational hatred of freedom and that is the plague of religion? That's how we see the French Revolution worked out. But the rules in the Bible about sex are not arbitrary. They do not stem from some sort of neurosis, from the resentment of a group of grumpy old men who are eager to prevent young people from having fun. These prohibitions are not capricious. They are not mean. The laws in the Bible protect us. They guard us. They point us, they return us to the created order, the world as it was created to be, which is filled with life, filled with joy, filled with freedom. Freedom in the enlightenment is freedom from constraint. Prior to the enlightenment, it was freedom to operate according to your nature. Your created nature, not your fallen nature. You see, we need the freedom to be who we were made to be before the fall. The Song of Solomon, this erotic love poem found in the Old Testament, it is the perfect expression 
of what our sexuality looks like when it flows within the banks, within the boundaries of God's created order. You know what happens when there are no banks and no boundaries? A swamp. Now, being from South Louisiana, that can sort of mean a positive thing, but in the context of my statement, it's negative. Song of Solomon, here's sexuality not repressed, not restricted, but flowing generously and and, 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 and greatly within its boundaries. Here's the lover proclaiming to his beloved, you are stately as a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches. And then the beloved responds with an invitation to go out into the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded. What is repressive about that? What, what is, you, you see, one of the ways that our culture is, is messing with us is that it's creating on us this idea that in the past they were repressive. That's not the case. That's a fiction. We've got this idea that Victorian morals were all about a lack of freedom. That's that's a rather self-serving reading of history. In the New Testament, in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that, that Roland read to us, here we see that when Paul talks about sexual behavior, and it's very complicated, the first sentence when he says it's not good to have sex, he's quoting what Christians were saying. And, and then he undercuts that. He says, no, that's wrong. And then he gives all these rules. And what is he doing? He's doing the same work as the Ten Commandments. He's thinking about sexuality in the context of the order of creation. He's articulating the boundaries and the regulations that protect God's original intent that sex be expressed in marriage between a man and a woman. God's laws about sex in the Bible invite us into freedom. They invite us into the created order of marital sex. They rightly order our desires for sexual pleasure and sexual connectedness. And these biblical laws about sex, they care for us. They are not our enemies. They protect us. Now, these laws weren't written by Congress. They weren't written by Self-interest groups, they were written by God, the creator, who understands that life outside of his created intent destroys us. But life inside the contours of his humanizing law makes us beautiful. And, and delivers us into the freedom to be who we were made to be. It makes us creatures who live well in the created order. It gives us the opportunity to become who we were made to be. Janelle and I had a dog. Well, we still got it, but uh, 12 years ago, we asked her parents to keep it for the weekend. And um, <laughs> no, literally, we got the dog. We had the dog two years, and then after two years, we moved to England. We couldn't take the dog with us. So we asked them if they would keep it for just a, a short period of time. And so that was in 2002. Or 2003, actually, 10 years ago. Piper is this dog's name. And Piper is the spawn of Satan. I mean, just... Only in my professional opinion, Piper did not have a, that, that, that common sense to stop eating. Now, I'm not joking. The, and, and this was even, the vet even told us this. There are a few dogs like this. Like, we discovered that Piper would not stop eating. So we had to be very careful with her food. And we had to be careful with trash. 
One time, we can't find Piper. Where's Piper? Where's Piper? We go out in the garage. She's knocked the trash can over. She's eating. We pull her out by her last little... She's a miniature schnauzer. So we pull her out by her legs, and she can't even move. She's swollen. No lie. She is swollen up so big that it looks comical, like she's got two little, four little toothpicks, and she's just kind of poof on her side. So Janelle calls the vet, and she's like, holy cow, what's going to happen? And the vet's like, well, you need to bring her in because we need to relieve all that pressure, and we need to do x-rays, make sure there's nothing sharp in there. And Janelle says, in her deep wisdom, that um, my husband won't really go for paying such a vet bill. Is there any home remedy? And, then, and, and this is not a lie. The vet says, yes, there's one. Give the dog two tablespoons of hydrogen peroxide, shake the dog vigorously, and set the dog outside. <laughs> I'm not lying. The vet said, the only danger to this is if there is a sharp object, it'll lacerate the inside and she'll die. And she said, well, considering the circumstances. So we gave the dog two tablespoons of hydrogen peroxide, shook the dog vigorously, set the dog outside. It commenced to doing its thing all over the backyard and out comes all this. And then it walks back in. Happy as can be shrunken down to its normal size. One day we told Stevie and Ben about this and they've had to use the same technique themselves. It works. Piper needs boundaries to be who she was made to be, which is the spawn of Satan. (laughs) You do too. And you know this. You know this. You know that there are desires in your heart that if you give full reign to them, they will destroy your neighborhood. They will destroy your friendships. They will destroy so many things. This is the biblical teaching on desire. It's not, it's not to restrict us. It's to make us, it's to give us who we were made to be. So to become a Christian, think about this. To convert is the beginning of reordering and redirecting your unholy desires. When you convert to Christ, you are justified. You are made whole in Christ, but then you must become what you are proclaimed in Christ to be. Being a Christian is about becoming truly human, not less than human. It's about becoming maximally human, maximally yourself. Being a Christian is about shaping our desires back into healthy, life-giving boundaries. We are relational creatures. We are made for deeply profound relationships with the triune God and with other human beings and with the created order. And to convert is not to lose that. To convert to Christ, to become a Christian, is to open your life up. To the spirit that hovered over creation in the beginning. That in the beginning drew out of creation its greatness. To become a Christian is to open your heart to the spirit of your creator. It's to allow the spirit of God to redirect your unholy desires. To become holy desires. Desires that will lead to your flourishing. And growing as a Christian means realigning your bodily desires toward their true ends. As we learn to love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength in obedience to the first and greatest commandment. As we learn to do that, as you put God in his proper place in your life, you know what happens? Your life gets reordered. 
The problem is not that you love. It's you love things in the wrong way. The problem is not that you desire. It's that you desire things in the wrong way or in, in disproportionate ways. to what, And the key to fixing your desires is to start with the greatest commandment. To start with commandment number one. To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as you develop the habit and the character of making God your top priority... You learn how to love yourself well and how to love your neighbor and indeed the whole creation. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Not your head. Your problem is not fundamentally your thoughts. It is fundamentally your loves, your desires. Now the head is important, but it is not the center of you. The center of you is that you are a lover before you're a thinker. You desire first and foremost, and Christianity heals you at the source. Now, fixing your thoughts is important, but don't stop there. We've got a lot of people in our churches who have orthodox theology and desperately disordered hearts. Now... God has created and ordered the world with boundaries and limits. And when Christians truly understand these creational designs, and as we grow in Christ, we can learn how to live beautifully within God's created order. Now, just before the sermon, I read the story of Jesus' first miracle. It was a wedding. It was a wedding at Cana. Now, knowing what we know about the overall storyline of the Bible, it was highly symbolic for Jesus to begin his public ministry at a wedding gone wrong. In a culture where running out of wine was the equivalent of forgetting the wedding cake. It it was. You can imagine. Can you imagine the stress that would race through the wedding part, the mother of the bride, if there was no cake? Can you imagine how, how this would mess up our, our weddings today? The host was embarrassed. Everyone felt the awkwardness. One might argue that this was not the best use of Jesus' resources and time if he's indeed the savior of the universe. Does he really need to be making wedding cake for a group of people who are culturally embarrassed? But to look at it this way misses the point of the whole Bible. And this is the point of the story. It was just another wedding until Jesus showed up. And seizing the moment, Jesus transformed six enormous jars of water into wine. Not cheap wine. No, 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 none of the stuff from Trader Joe's. He didn't go for the economic route. No, no, no. Vintage wine. Imported expensive stuff. You know how much of it? 750 bottles of it. I mean, even at Trader Joe's prices, I'm broke, right? And it took some time. But I, I, I assume that eventually they got their way to the bottom of the jars. I'm sure they kept at it. But it did take some time. They eventually ran out of the good stuff in Cana. It might have taken a few weeks or if they were really dedicated elk tonight, so a few days. Just joking, just joking. I don't know where that came from. Strike it from the court record. But sooner or later, the jars ran dry. 
It was, after all, only a foretaste of what was to come. You see, Jesus never runs dry. Married, single, gay, straight, divorced, widowed, rich, poor, whatever your circumstances, Jesus is the key to your contentment and satisfaction. Bring him into the center of your life and he will turn your disappointments and your water into the best wine. That's what he does. That's what his whole ministry was about. And this life that he brings, the true good stuff, it will never run out. You see, the final scene of the Bible is the marriage supper of the Lamb. A wedding literally to end all other weddings. And when God's marriage to his people is finally consumed, all people, regardless of their marital status, regardless of their sexual preference or their sexual history, all people, regardless of their gender, their nationality, their status, their affiliation, their IQ, all people are invited to participate in this great wedding and to become part of the family of God. Who would turn that down? Who would say no to that? Jesus, the Son of God, issues an invitation to the whole world. For all of us who believe in Him. Who have yielded our lives to Him. Who have placed Him at the center of our lives. We can be certain of His love and His welcome into that party. Into that wonderful day. And when that day comes, when we meet Him face to face. For a wedding feast that will not end. For wine that will not run out, I hope that you will be there. I hope that you will join us for a true happily ever after with Jesus at the very center of the truly human, truly good life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.